power. How are we this morning? Are we good? Yeah, excellent. Guys wouldn't be lying to me at any level, would you, about that? You good? Yeah, well, today we're looking at the value of being relationally truthful. Oh, Rose. Now batteries are pumped. They are awesome. So idea that in this setting, in this church, we are um, safe, if you like, or should feel safe, or we should be fostering a safe environment for people to be authentic, for people to be relationally truthful with each other. Now, that doesn't mean that you come in here with a big placard saying, here's all my problems, that we be, we're, 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 we're sensible about it, but we understand that in this church... It's a safe environment to, to deal with our sin, to deal with our burdens, to deal with all the things of life. And that's, that's why it's a value here and that's why we're going to talk to it today. You know, when I was 18, I made a, a decision to, to, follow, to follow Jesus, you know, no turning back. I became a Christian when I was 18. And uh, for me, that involved the laying down of my, my self-reliance and trusting in God involved the confessing of my self-reliant, my my self-destructive nature, if you like, and facing the fact that I was not just merely a person who had all these bad experiences in life and therefore that kind of validated my actions and what I did, but I was also actually a sinful person with a broken heart, and that's what spoke into those actions, controlled my responses and and my attitude toward God. And I was confronted with that. I was an angry person towards God, but a person with a broken and sinful heart, and asking God to renew that. Asking God to redeem that, to heal that broken soul. It wasn't done lightly. It it, it literally took several years. Because I am by nature a fixer of my own issues. Uh, Pride that refuses to admit weakness. uh, Refuses to let people see the frail me. And that's been the work of God in my life. Now my wife might go, you know what, he hasn't done too much work there. But... If you knew me before, you'd be like, wow. But I was ironically confronted and rescued by a man on a cross. A picture of humility, a picture of weakness, a picture of shame. That's what I was rescued by. That's what I was redeemed by. That's what confronted my heart. But most challenging was the fact that this man was not merely just a man, but God in the flesh. God come to dwell amongst us. And because of that, this man on the cross knew the nature and condition of my heart, the pursuits of my heart. It's active rebellion against God. I mean, how often do we read in the Scriptures that Jesus knew the heart of those who claimed to follow him, or he knew the hearts of those around him, he knew the hearts of people, and 
perhaps not to entrust himself to them, but he also knows our hearts intimately and yet and yet gave himself up for me, loved me to the point of death, gave himself up for me. And I have had to continually come to grips with that concept. He is a God who knows everything about me, every little hidden thing. And not just before I was saved, but even after I was saved, knows it all. And this is what we've been looking at over the journey, is it not? This is Jesus and the woman at the well. And if you were here when we did John's Gospel, this is Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. He knows their hearts, and yet he moves towards them. This is Jesus and Peter at the Last Supper. Oh, you know, Jesus, I would never leave you, run away. I'm no scaredy cat. Yeah, yeah, man. Jesus knows our sinfulness and our ugliness and yet he dies for us, moves towards us. If you haven't confronted your sinful heart and come to terms with it, you haven't come to Jesus. There's no way around it. That's where he begins. With our ugliness. With everything that is unattractive about us. One of the essential realizations around moving into a relationship with God, is that you understand that there is not one detail, not one, not one kind of uh, thought or emotion or action or impulse that's not fully seen and known by God. That's not just kind of on His table exposed to His view. But God's love for us is to refuse to leave us in that, to come towards us and then lead us out of that. That's, that's the game plan. Do you know, just in first in Second Thessalonians, actually, two ten, Paul's just talking in this church about this great news, and he equates the moment of salvation as the moment that we stop being deceived by ourselves and our relationship with God, and begin to love the truth of His saving grace. Salvation, it seems, is this truth awakening. This. Uh, beginning of a new and authentic relationship between us and God where we begin to trust God rather than perhaps, I don't know, whatever we used to do try and manipulate Him, try and impress Him rage at Him with our fist that's how we come to God, you see trusting in His goodness He's good for us in a way that means He's for our well-being and joy trusting that what he what He's done through Jesus on the cross, has actually uh, satisfied his wrath and anger towards sin. There's justice in the cross that satisfies God's just heart and makes amends for our rebellion. We trust God is for us, you see. That's why it's what it's at the end of Romans 8, that whole, that whole passage in Romans 8 where it says, you know, if God's for us, who can be against us? We sing that in a song. We trust that he sent Jesus into the world not to condemn us, but to save us. Who goes to sports functions where you sit? Well, you used to, not so much anymore. You get beaten up if you held it up now, I think. That John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, it's actually... In this way, this is how God loved the world. He sent His Son into the world to die for the world. That those who would believe in Him might not be condemned, but find salvation. The whole gameplay of God is to come towards a sinful world and to redeem it to Him. 
Yeah? If you think of God in a way that he's out to get you, that he's out to kind of punish you, that he's going to find out all the bad things about you, then he's going to make you do like 50 sit-ups for him or something or other, you're never going to run towards him. But his offer to us is rescue from punishment. His offer to us is freedom from sin. His offer to us is to take us out of our condemnation and set us free. And in that, a return to open and authentic relationships that were lost at the fall at, in Genesis 3. If you've, been here, Connor, if you've been here in the last three years and you've been listening to me, uh, you know that we understand that humanity is fallen and sinful and we read about it in Genesis 3 and that's kind of washed over all of us. And in that moment, every single person now relates to each other in brokenness, in shame and all these brutal, bad, deformed relational conditions. God, in his love, does not wish for that to be our, our condition, our way that we relate to each other. So he starts this plan of redemption, of, of, of bringing people back to him. And, and it started with kind of bringing people back into a, a family, you know, drawing Abraham out and saying to him, look, this is how you do life with me. And, and, and then he, he gives ten commandments and says, this is how you do life with me. And on and on we go until he goes, you know, none of this is really sinking into your hearts. I'm going to send my son and this is how life is done with me. And he's going to be the redeemer. I've gone off my notes. I'm way off track. In Romans 5, Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome. And he's basically laying out what I just laid out then, uh, the nature of the gospel, that humanity is lost in sin and that God has sent Jesus to be the means of finding our way back to God, that we might be in right relationship with him, that we might be in truthful relationship with him. That's what he's seeking to do. Uh, we have this phrase where uh, we are uh, in right relationship with God because of Christ's righteousness. The righteousness, the the right relationship that Jesus and only Jesus had with the Father. He was the only guy who ever led a sinless life on this earth. The only guy who ever followed the Ten Commandments perfectly. The only guy who, who lived without sin and qualified as a person to be a blameless, sinless person. And then what he does is he takes that blameless, sinless self and offers it on behalf of people who are sinful. So a guy who's in right relationships with God, perfect relationships with God, comes and and is qualified to, to, to do what we can't do, and that's to die for the sin that we have in our lives. And then what God says is anyone who shelters under that cross, anyone who takes refuge under what Christ has done, what I do is I take the righteousness of Christ, his right relationship, and not with God, but with everyone he met. The word righteousness in the Bible is, is a relational word. It's about being right with God. It's about being right with your neighbor. It's about being right with your enemy. It's about being right with your family. It's righteousness is a relational word where you are in right and good relationships with everything around you, and that was Jesus. And he takes that and he 
places it over us. And that's why we say we're in Christ. God views us through Christ's righteousness, not our unrighteousness. That's the whole transaction. When we get to chapter 5, what we see is, is Paul saying something about God. That this took place, that this, that this dying for our sins took place when? When, when we'd kind of measured up a little bit, when we'd done something of worth. In, in, that, in that chapter in John where, where John says, For God so loved the world, that word world, there's 90 times it appears in John's Gospel. 86 of those times it means the organized system of rebellion against God. For God so loved this rebellious planet that he sent his son to die for it. That's what's going on. Let's read uh, Romans 5. For while we were still weak, while we were still incapable of saving ourselves, of doing anything of any good to save ourselves from our sin, while we were in that position of active rebellion against God, at the right time, Christ died for the who? For the, for the righteous? For the ungodly? For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps a good person one might dare to even die. But, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Knowing every sinful detail of our hearts, Christ died for us. Therefore, now that you've been justified, now that you've had the righteousness of Christ placed over your life and you live in right relationship with God, forensic moment, now that you've been justified by his blood, not by anything you've done but what Jesus has done, How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Now that you're a Christian, how much more is God for you? While you were still an active rebel, Jesus died for you. Now in every detail of your heart, Jesus died for you. God moves towards sinners in their weakness. That's what he does. Because we cannot move towards him. Jesus tells us, that God's knowledge of us is intimate. We, we get that. We, we, we see that, I think it's in, in Matthew's Gospel where he says, he knows the numeric value of every hair on your head. Now, if you're Sam, you're not all that impressed by that. You're like, get me a mirror, I'll count them. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. Just... <laughs> but you know something? David, the writer of the Psalms, and Psalm 139 tells us that God formed us, that he made us, that he knows every little detail of us. And he says, where can I go? Uh, where can I go that you don't know anything about me? Can I climb the highest mountain? Can I swim down to the bottom of the ocean? Is there anywhere in this world I can go that you are not aware of my total being? And the answer is no. And King Solomon, I reckon he had hair, but let's, let's see what he says. First Chronicles 28 says, The Lord searches all hearts and understands Every thought and plan. There's not, a, there's not a thing that runs through your head that God isn't aware of. And yet, for God so loved this corrupt and broken world that he sent his son to die for them. Now, if that's the case, how much more is he for you now that you are his friend, now that you have been brought into this family, now that you are seeking to live a life that gives glory to him rather than steals glory from him? 
Here's what we have is a common understanding that God is for us, that God can be trusted with the care and nurture of our souls. Or we can be real and authentic with this God because there's nothing to hide. And yet he wants to be in a relationship with us. Here's my point. Knowing that, knowing that even um, the worst of us is known by God and yet he still loves us and comes towards us, should shape and resource our relationship to be authentic with each other. Coming to God also takes humility. We finally say, I am not my own saviour. We say, I need. I need something greater than self. I need something more satisfying and more lasting than self-discovery, like those things that we put out there look at all my achievements the inauthentic self to try and get people to impress us we need more than that i need something more freeing than white knuckle behavior modification begrudging morality i need intervention i need to be rebuilt i need salvation i need jesus that's the cry of the humble heart i need not I'll do or I'll promise if you do this. And that's the common understanding that we have here. We need. We all acknowledged that when we came to Christ, didn't we? We, we need. And maybe for the first time in our lives in that moment, we experience what it is to be able to be truthful about ourselves, to not feel any sense of shame or deceit, or cover-up. And maybe for the first time, all that invaded our human experience at the fall that was our normal understanding of how we relate to each other, shame and fear and hiding and blame and accusing as a way of being in relationship with each other, has been kind of renewed with God. Each person now has the capacity to live in authentic relationships with each other. Why? Because we we understand our common need. We understand our common need for grace. It could be a little uncomfortable. It could be a little vulnerable. But here's the thing. It's described as a peace that passes all understanding. It's described as a rest for the soul. That Jesus says, yeah... Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give rest for your soul. My burden is light. The burden that you were carrying is killing you. But my burden, the burden of working on your soul is light. It's done with a gentle grace. And we experience the grace of God, and here's the thing. Here's my contention. It allows us to be real and authentic with each other. Grace does not negate our need for moral character. It empowers it. It gives it an environment in which to flourish. Grace drives the capacity for relational truth. Before we can have any hope of living lives that pursue this value of being relationally truthful with each other, we must first have our hearts melted by a knowledge that we are known by God and still loved and pursued. But even more incredible is the fact that God's expectation is that we will still from time to time behave as unsaved rebels. 
We will grieve His Spirit. You know what? A non-Christian cannot grieve the Spirit of God. It's not in re- non-Christian is not in relationship with the Spirit. It's only Christians that grieve the Spirit of God. Uh, everybody else commits blasphemy against the Spirit of God. But here's the thing. He doesn't push away from the table. He keeps coming at our hearts again and again, allowing us to confess our weaknesses towards sin. And he wraps us up in grace and rebuilds us in grace. And this is the environment of the church, yeah? This is the mutually recognized need that allows us to be relationally truthful with each other, the transforming grace of God in our hearts. You know you're a sinner saved by grace. I know I'm a sinner saved by grace. And so we should know that we are all recovering sin addicts. That's how we should move towards other people. We should move towards them as recovering sin addicts, firm in our love, uh, generous in our grace, to help each other continue this journey of, of spiritual growth. You know, I think one of the most common criticisms of the church, and perhaps it's probably more more accurately described as a disappointment, really, because people are looking for something different, is that when people encounter the church, when they scratch a little deeper than the, the biscuits and the tea, what they find really is a lack of gentle grace, a, con- a culture of concealment, you know, nothing wrong with me here, and an absence of relational truthfulness. I mean, that's what everybody's desperately looking for. All the church is. All you and I are are just one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread, where to go for life, where to find healing. The most truthful admission we can make is that we are grace-dependent creatures. And without the transforming work of Jesus in our lives, now, like, if you're going to write something down, this is it, okay? Without the transformative work of Jesus in our lives, we are left with nothing but our own inadequacies to perceive and see each other through. And if that's our play, then we, then we will conceal, we will hide, we will pretend, we will masquerade because what we feel about ourselves, we project onto others and we go, well, if, if I come out in the open about this, I know what my heart thinks, I imagine that's what their heart thinks. Our capacity to be relationally truthful is a derived value. It is not something we inherently do, but something we must push back into our relationship with God to resource. We are confronted with a good Father who knows the details of our hearts and yet moves towards us for our well-being and joy, for our renewal and our remodeling. And He gives us each other with new and remodeled hearts to be the instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. That's what we are. It's a new way to live where we all recognize our common need. We all recognize our common failures. We all serve each other in warring against these things that seek to destroy our souls. 
The evidence of the work of God in our lives is seen in how we move towards each other and make each ourselves open to true assessment of our own lives. That's, that's what it is. Now, how are we, how we doing for time? In our, in, our, in our reading, we'll bounce through these. In our reading today in Galatians 6, what, what we, I mean, I went everywhere trying to work out how can I prove relational uh, truthfulness is a value to have? And I looked at uh, you know, Ephesians where it says, don't you know, speak truth to each other you know, in love. And looked at Matthew 18, you know, this is how we deal with tough situations. There's all kinds of prescriptions in, in the Bible about how, how we do it practically. But in Ephesians 6, what we get is an environment that fosters it. Okay? We're not going to look at everything. We're just going to look at four particular things. An environment that fosters relational truthfulness is spiritual gentleness. It's bearing with one another's burdens. It's, it's examining our own hearts before we examine the hearts of others. And it's a commitment to each other's well-being, where we know we're for each other. We don't have to build our own little empires. Relational truthfulness recognizes that we are not perfect. That doesn't diminish our responsibility to pursue holiness. Grace, we said, uh, isn't... Is, is the environment that, that empowers moral conviction. It just means that we know each other, that we're not perfect. Firstly, what we understand is that we are going to encounter failure in each other. We are to expect that this could get messy and we should expect that occasionally we have to restore people who have stumbled who have lived inconsistency, inconsistently with grace, who have perhaps, I don't know, failed morally uh, or, or relationally or lapsed in ethics or into addiction. Perhaps they've offended others through careless words or deeds. We're talking about uh, a, a, um, an out-of-character act. Spiritual gentleness that is spoken about here is a firm hand of love that seeks to restore, not condemn a person when their actions are inconsistent with grace. You see, this is a hospital for saints who are recovering from sin addictions and occasionally we push back into them. When people act out of character, when they do something that is not in line with their confession of faith, this should be a place that speaks truth in love, Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, in a way that allows for recovery, not for further shame and isolation. Gentleness is the fruit of the Spirit and it's exercised by those who walk by the Spirit towards those who have stumbled, towards those who have just tripped up. This, this is not about people who are committing uh, persistent, unrepentant sin. This is about people who just kind of, in a moment of weakness, did something dumb. In these cases, those who are caught in transgressions need to know that this is a place where the hard work of reconciliation and recovery will be done by people who are spiritually gentle, not, not using the Bible as doctrinal cruelty, by people who know there go I, but by the grace of God. Matthew, Matthew 18 gives us some, some guidelines for restoring 
uh, broken relationships as well. And, and also guidelines for people who do persist in unrepentant sin and there's different kind of avenue there. But here's the thing. We're for recovery. We're for recovery. And because we are, we can be real and authentic with each other. We don't have to hide things. Bearing each other's burdens. There's an underlying assumption in Galatians 6 and it's this. We all have burdens. Sinners saved by grace still encounter hardships in life. We all have things that, that weary our soul. Now this is not so much about a sinful behavior as about just the things that we encounter. The word burden here carries with it a sense of being held up, do you know, like, or, or, or a struggle due to the weight of something. There's something that's just pushing me into the ground. We all have burdens. No one's without them. That can weigh, weigh us down in our spiritual progress and our experience of grace. These burdens might look like an unsaved spouse. They might look like a sick child. They might look like financial pressure. They might look like a cold marriage. They might, I don't know, they look like things that, that, are, that worry us, basically. They're not transgressions. They're the rough and tumble of life, hardship that has become bigger than, than they need to. And so begin to suffocate our spiritual lives because we're kind of like wrestling with it all by ourselves. It's just as Bill Withers wrote. Who knows who Bill Withers is? Wow. We, we all need somebody to lean on. Some. Time in our life. No? Um, Paul plagiarized that when he said, bear with each other's burdens. He just wrote it differently. Now, before someone can bear a burden, you actually have to lay it down. There's no pride in bearing burdens. You've got to be able to lay it down, to, have, to share it, so to speak. This is where relational truthfulness is in, as a core value comes in. We are honest with each other that life is tough. We're not immune to pain and suffering. This is not about coming in and self-deprecation and, 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 and pity-seeking and banging on about every single thing that's going on in your life to anyone who stands still for five seconds. This is more about having, having real people in your life who, who, who you know you can trust and journey with. This is about small groups. This is about prayer partners. This is about pastoral care, you know? And if you're not in any of those relationships, who's bearing your burdens? Who's walking with you in this? The law of Christ that Paul that talks about here, that he actually invokes as the overarching thing that controls all of this, is unconditional love. It's his rewording of, you know, love your neighbor. We're to bear each other's burdens, which means we are to trust each other with our stories and to treat those stories with with value and dignity. Relational truthfulness is fostered when we bear burdens and love unconditionally. Okay, let's go. Third third thing here is is that... um, third principle that fosters relational truthfulness is, is an examined heart. 
Hearts that are consistently being exposed to the purposeful renewal of the work of the Spirit. An unexamined heart, uh, and, sorry, an examined heart is one that is consistently aware of its own need for grace, its need for God's continual regenerative work. So it understands itself so that when another heart comes to it, it goes, here's just another, another person in need of grace. It doesn't boast in its own efforts, but points consistently to what God is doing. I am who I am because of the work of God in my life. Let me take you there. An unexamined heart is a humble heart, a dependent heart, a heart that examines its own actions before it worries about anybody else's actions. And you know you know those people. And you just want to move towards them. Because you know they have a spirit of gentleness. Because they've had a work done on their own heart. Spirit-fueled humility and recognition of our own need for God's ongoing grace allows us to be real with each other because we have been real with ourselves before God. Finally, the last point that we want to throw out here, another quality that fosters relational truthfulness and authentic relationships is a culture of edification. To not grow weary of doing good is to persevere in building each other's faith up, to persevere in building each other's relationships with Christ up. The Christian life is a personal one, but it's never a private one. It involves being engaged with each other and being engaged with the welfare of each other. But you know, Paul has in mind just not spiritual um, a commitment to spiritual well-being, but he also has in mind here a commitment to the physical well-being of each other. That we would um, commit to the, to the well-being of people. No one should be in need. We should release our finances to, towards helping each other. That was a picture of the early church. No one was, no one was hoarding in everything they had to, to just kind of care for themselves, but they were releasing stuff to care for others. God has acted with kindness and goodness to us, so we should likewise be committed to the well-being of each other's spiritual and physical needs. Essentially, we're for each other here, you know. We love each other. We want to see each other grow in relationship with God. That's the kind of environment that fosters good, uh, authentic relationships, real ones. And that's our prayer here for Freeway. Relational truthfulness is a value that, foster, that is fostered by a recognition of our common need for grace. It's a derived quality that is empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's cultivated by spiritual gentleness, our burying each other's burdens, our constantly examining our own hearts and our unqualified love for each other. Like, that's how we get it. I mean, there's more, but that's it for today.